Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Mike Medeo, author of Lost Mount Penn. We are joined by Mike Medeo. He is the author of the book Lost Mount Penn, Wineries, Railroads, and Resorts of Reading. Mike, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Now, at the beginning of the book, you have a photo of, of a group of men who are sitting around a table in Reading, and they, they've got wine glasses and wine bottles. And you say in the book that this uh, was what spurred you to initially do your research. What did you see in that photo? What was it that intrigued you? Yeah, so I was, I was reading another book about, it was about the, the kind of history of Pennsylvania Dutch cuisine. And, and this photo popped up and uh, I'm a wine writer and also a wine lover. And so I saw these guys kind of sitting around a table drinking wine. And I started, you know, I read the caption and it said, uh, and I don't have it right in front of me exactly what it said, but it was something about Pennsylvania men sitting around a, you know, a local wine house in the 1800s. And I thought, wow, that's something I've never heard of. And, and I've heard of that in Europe, but I never heard of it here. And so I, I just started reading and then I started talking about these wine houses and the, um, the amazing cuisine and, and local wines that they served during this period. And I just thought, wow, you know, and that's, you know, 45 minutes from where I live, this existed and, and obviously doesn't exist today. And, and um, yeah, so I just sort of went down that rabbit hole, started, started looking up things that were mentioned in this book. And, you know, hours later, I was, I was sitting in a dark room looking at my computer screen, <laughs> learning as much as I could about uh, these wine houses at the time. So when you started doing your research, did, was it difficult to find material on this time period? Um, not, not too bad. I mean, I think the, uh, the big thing for me was newspapers.com, uh, which is a website that's affiliated with Ancestry that has lots of, uh, lots of newspapers from the time. And so I, I feel like without that, it would have been a lot harder. It wouldn't have been impossible, but you were talking about microfilms and things of that nature. It would have taken me a lot longer to find some of the things that I found. So that was, that was a huge help. Um, I also found a lot in the library at the Berks History Center, uh, you know, is a, is a great place for, uh, for lots of different, uh, you know, pieces from the time. Now, I think it's intriguing that the newspapers at the time were reporting on wine uh, in that era. Was, was that something that surprised you? Um, I, I think that, I don't know if it surprised me, but, but the way people spoke about it was one of the things that really drove me into it further. You know, it was, I found out that this place existed and these wine houses and these winemakers existed at the time. But, you know, beyond that, that was interesting. But then I started, when I started reading about it, it was the way, the almost hyperbole that they used when they were talking about this and how grand they made the times that they were having sound during this period that, that really drew me in and kept me going as I was, I was doing more research. So we don't usually think of Reading as kind of a wine-centric area. How, how did wine, how did uh, grape growing and, and winemaking begin there? 
Yeah, so, uh, you know, the area was settled in the 1700s. It was mostly German immigrants, mostly coming from southern Germany, south central, south uh, west Germany. And, you know, we, we think of Germany as a beer country, but southern Germany is, has a strong winemaking culture as well. So these guys came over, settled in this, this area in Berks County, and started growing grapes, probably for their own you know, just to make wine for themselves and their families at first. Um, but they started to develop a little bit of a reputation in Reading for, you know, having quality wines in a time where a lot of people in, in, in different areas all up and down the East Coast were trying to figure out how to uh, make uh, wine work in the new world. And um, yeah, so, so so sort of started out from there and and grew. The other thing that's really important about Reading in particular is that the city is, we're in the Schuylkill River in Berks County, but there's several mountains just outside the city. And so uh, some of the more knowledgeable farmers about wine growing started trying to put grapes out on the mountainsides, uh, which is something that in Europe, if you if you know wine, you'll know that the, this kind of the best grapes grow on hillsides and mountainsides for winemaking. Uh, areas that are maybe not so fertile for other types of farming work really well for wine. So, so this particular spot worked well. Now, you mentioned that uh, the European countries treat alcohol differently than the U.S. and that this influenced, with, with the immigrants coming over to Reading, that that influenced their wine making, wine drinking culture. What, what is that difference? Yeah, so I mean, that's, that's kind of one of the other things that we, when we talked about a minute ago, when I was initially drawn into it with this wine house culture was that it's something that doesn't exist as much here in the United States uh, as it, you know, as it obviously did back then. I think that wine is not so much, and, and beer, depending on where you, where you are, it's not so much an inebriant that people drink to get drunk. It's just part of the daily life. It's what they drink uh, with meals and with food and you know, that's just, just again, just part of life. And it's not sort of something that people look down upon. Um, whereas in the United States, there's a lot more restrictions, uh, you know, even, you know, for festivals and, and things of that nature. Um, but just, just that, that, that culture really permutates through everything. And um, yeah. So what kind of grapes were they using? So uh, the, the challenge that they faced when they came over here was, of course, they, there were lots of local, there were lots of wild local grapes in the United States when European settlers came to this area. Um, they did not make particularly good wine, however, they found out relatively quickly. So the Europeans started trying to bring vines over from Europe. But because of a variety of factors, you know, climate, different soils, different pests, diseases, all that kind of stuff, they had a lot of trouble at the beginning. Um, actually, the, this, this takes us outside of, uh, of Berks County and Reading, but the very first hybrid grape, so a hybrid being a cross between grapes of two different species, so the European grape and the native grape was discovered outside of Philadelphia. So what had happened actually was that William Penn uh, in the 1700s, probably even late 1600s, started bringing over some vines from the Bordeaux region in France, trying to 
plant them. I'm sure he wasn't doing the planting himself, but his gardeners planted them. And the attempt was to, uh, you know, successfully grow grapes for making wine in the United States. It failed, all the grapes died uh, after several years and, and he wasn't able to successfully make any wine. But a, but a few years later, one, a gardener for one of his sons discovered this grape that they called the Alexander, the guy's name is Alexander, who discovered it. And that became the very first hybrid grape. So it had kind of the hardiness of the, the local native grapes so that it could grow, but because it was crossed with, I don't know which, but one of the grapes that, that Penn had brought over, it ha had some of the qualities of the European grape. And so it made a palatable wine uh, that could be drunk. It probably wasn't you know, as great as, as even the hybrids we have now, but, um, but that kind of jump-started the industry for the East Coast of the United States. And then once they figured out that these hybrids could work and exist, others got developed. So as I said, Alexander was the starting point, and that's actually the starting point for wine in Redding. Um, they had a wine called the Redding Red in kind of the early to mid 1800s that was made from Alexander, also called the Schuylkill grape. Uh, it was found on the banks of the Schuylkill. Um, but then uh, after that, other grapes, Catawba, which is a, another hybrid that's actually still available today in, in some, some East Coast regions. Isabella was another popular one. Um, Concord, of course, uh, was one that, that came out of this group as well. And actually, going up to Erie, the Welsh family, uh, who's made the Concord grape a, a household name, actually started out in winemaking as well. And uh, it was really in pro when Prohibition came along that they, they moved away from that. So, And you mentioned that some of these grapes have a foxy taste to them. What does that mean? What, what kind of a taste is that? <laughs> And it's sort of this geeky, geeky term that we use in the wine industry, but um, it's just, it's funky is, is another, you know, just a good way to describe it. It's sort of almost feral and, and in, in not, not such a great way. It's just a bit off-putting. Um, you know, wine geeks like myself sometimes talk about weird, you know, weird tasting things that we have like tar and and dirt and things like that as, as if they're positive. But in this case, it's, it's almost certainly something that's not particularly uh, favorable. Now you talk about how it was after the Civil War that this kind of wine house period begins. What was happening then that, that spurred uh, uh, the, the emergence of this cultural moment? Sure, I mean, it's, it's really interesting because Reading as a, as a town or as a city was growing because of railroads. You know, you had the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad, which was one of the biggest companies in the world during this period. There was a lot of industry there. It was a hub. So there was a lot of things happening that made Reading a place to be. In the book, I really focus on, however, the, the sort of how the winemaking led into more of hospitality saloons and, and wine houses and bars and things like that, which led to them becoming resorts, which led to them building, you know, things around this idea of resorts. And, and it, it's, it's really interesting to think of it from that standpoint. I mean, yes, there were a lot of different factors going on, but I think the fact that these early guys had really persisted and figured out how to make winemaking work here and we're having success with it and continuing to grow it was part of what made um, you know the industry take off. 
Now, some of the, there are a lot of interesting figures uh, that you mentioned in your book that were involved in this industry. Uh, uh, Jacob Lewis Kukler is one of them, often called the, the Hermit of Mount Penn. And who was he? How did he get started in this business? Yeah, I mean, he's, a, he's, he's the, the classic character. He's the guy who really brought me into this. You know, again, going back to the, the first thing you asked me about you know, how, I, how I got into it, I started reading about this guy, Kukler, and he, he just was such a fascinating character in the way people talked about him. He essentially, he, he came over from Germany uh, in the 1850s, and he was a carpenter, woodmaker, uh, uh, various jobs like that. As he started to get a little older, he started to look for something else, and he ended up running a saloon in town, started to take an interest in local wine. But this guy, just when you read about him, it, it, he, was, he was such a character, such a beloved character by the people who lived in the town. Now, he was described as like a quiet, studious sort of fellow, okay, maybe what you might call an introvert today, but he had this way of really connecting and, and forming these deep bonds with people. And so his saloon that he opened in town kind of quickly became this gathering place for influential you know, politicians and lawyers and doctors and all sorts of people like that. And then a little bit later, Kukler decided that he wanted to move up to Mount Penn and live up there. Uh, he actually started by just renting some property, leasing some property and creating like a little summertime hangout for him and his friends. And after a few years decided he was going to move up there full time, got a larger uh, place of property, built himself a little house and, and ended up living up there. And again, this is before you had any trains or roads going up Mount Penn. So the, really the only way to get up there was to walk. Uh, it's not, you know, it's probably three to four miles outside of town. So it's it's not so far away that you're you're completely disengaged from from society, but you know far enough that you, you certainly had to make the effort, and that's kind of how he got the name, the Hermit of Mount Penn. He lived the last you know several decades of his life up on the mountain, started making wine, um, and uh, we can talk about how his friends you know um, were going to go came up came up to to visit him as well. But I wanted to sort of let yeah, you get yeah. in there. Yeah. Um, the I guess they had a name for themselves, the Fußgangers. Uh, who were the, who, what does that mean and who were they? Yeah, so Fußgänger is the German word. It actually means pedestrian in modern German. Really, footgoers is, is what it literally means. And so they were mostly patrons from his bar. Again, these, these sort of influential people um, included a guy named Tom Zimmerman, who was the editor of the Reading Times, uh, a guy named Daniel Ermintraut, who was the uh, eventually U.S. congressman for the region. So, uh, you know, a, a lot of guys like that. Um, and when, when Kukler moved up there, they missed his bar. And so they started walking and hiking up to visit him. Uh, the joke of the day was that, you know, it was a walker's club, it was a hiking club, but every path led to the roost. So it was essentially a bunch of guys who got together and, and walked up to visit their friend and drank his wine and smoked cigars and Ate, ate whatever food he prepared for them and, and all that kind of stuff. Now you say that it was, you know, that in addition to smoking cigars and drinking wine, that they were very literary. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of poetry sure. and your book includes a lot of poems. Uh, talk about that literary side of, of that group. Yeah, it sort of goes back to what I was saying before in that the way they talked about it is what made it so compelling for me. You know, essentially a bunch of guys getting together and drinking and hanging out and having fun and making jokes 
I mean, that sounds like it would have been fun to be a part of, but why are we talking about it over a hundred years later? And I think it was because of the way they wrote about it. Um, again, they were well-educated, uh, you know, literary, literary people and all in, you know, high sort of high-end jobs. And so, um, so they had that capacity. It was something they were interested in as well. So they used to talk about, you know, literary things and poems and things like that. But then Kukler himself had a, a logbook that he kept. And so anyone who came up to visit him could write in the logbook. And as I mentioned, Tom Zimmerman, the editor of the Reading Times, was one of his best friends, actually the guy who came up with the name Kukler's Roost, which was what uh, Kukler's place came to be known. And Zimmerman started uh, publishing some of the things from, from the logbook. Uh, and so it, uh, the logbook, unfortunately, is no longer with us. But uh, by looking through some of the newspapers at the time, we can find some of the, the things that were written in there. And they, they tended to be either like a poem about, you know, visiting Cuckoo's Roost or some sort of prose that, that talked about it. And sometimes it was lighthearted. Sometimes it was more serious. But there was a lot of really interesting stuff. Now, over time, uh, the mountain would uh, become populated with a variety of sites there, vineyards and hotels and resorts. And uh, what was it that, that drove the development of this hill? Yeah, so I, I, I think that as it started, there was a number of people who, were, who were, had vineyards uh, on the mountain, including Kukler and a guy named Reiniger. Uh, and that was really the first development out there. But then in 1890, they, they built the uh, Mount Penn Gravity Railroad. Now, there had been talk for quite a while of putting some sort of recreational element on Mount Penn and also Never Sink as well, which is the mountain next door. Um, over in the Lehigh Valley, they had the Mock Chunk Switchback Railway. Hope I pronounced that right. Um, and you know, sort of that that came, I don't know exactly when that was built, but kind of in the mid 1800s, that became this popular, it was originally built as a, um, as a, a functional railway to, to carry supplies and things, but they uh, turned it into like a pleasure ride. And so people would go there and, and some people say that it's, it's essentially was the first roller coaster. So this idea of a railroad for pleasure had, had sort of come up in this, in this area and that's eventually what they decided to do on Mount Penn. And it was a it was called a gravity railroad. So they it used steam originally and later electricity to go up and then it used uh, gravity to come down. So in a way it was a fun ride. You got to see a lot of cool sights and also um, you know get away from the sort of the hot city city in the you know in the in the warmer weather. Um, well let's talk a little bit about the food that many of these uh, wine houses and resorts would serve. Uh, the, many of these people were immigrants from Germany. Were, was the food influenced by where they came from? For sure, yeah. There was there was a lot of a, a lot of German influence uh, when you read through the menus. A lot of sausages and and things of that nature. Um, a couple of the the really popular recipes of the time: chicken and waffles in the in the in the Dutch sort of Burke style, Pennsylvania Dutch Burke style. So also in Lancaster type area, but this is where you have a waffle and then you have chicken with gravy on top of it. So not the, the sort of fried chicken and waffle soul food that is popular nowadays, but um, the original 
Um, which, I was going to say that the, the chicken and waffles of, of, of Pennsylvania is actually several hundred years older than the, the, the more popular chicken and waffles today. Um, in fact, they use waffles um, sort of as bread, you know, like how we might serve bread at a meal, they would serve waffles kind of alongside a meal. So serve with lots of different things. Um, you mentioned that you quote a customer of the Steigerwald uh, resort area uh, talking about, and you quote him as saying the, that their chicken and waffle dinner was a culinary poem with many accompaniments in blank verse. And that, seem, that seems a bit much for a chicken and waffle dinner. <laughs> well, I mean, first of all, that's, that's a great example, just very short of what I was talking about, sort of the way they talked about the times that they were having, but yeah, absolutely. And then there's, um, there's also a, there's a number of, of descriptions of, of Kugler's uh, roast pig and uh, in the book that, that, that also, um, makes you really wish you could go back in time and try it. Now today, uh, Mount Penn has the, the pagoda, which is very famous. Uh, but before that, it had a tower. They built a tower up there. What, what would that have looked like uh, if we had seen it back in, in its heyday? Yeah, so it's actually on the cover of the book, um, which I, I assume you guys can show. Um, but yeah, it was just a, a several story tower that was built out of stone with some wood and there were there was a large dance pavilion kind of a, a, a coming out of the base. And it was built as sort of the entertainment hub of this gravity railroad. So um, as we said, you could ride it up to the top and you could get out and go to the tower and you could you know, get food and drink and you could dance and, and hang out and you could climb up to the top. It was three or four stories and you could kind of look out over the, over the mountains and you know, my understanding is that it, it certainly, if anyone knows Reading and the Pagoda and how the Pagoda has become kind of a symbol of the city, um, the tower really was that before and that everyone who kind of came to the area wanted to visit the tower and you could, because, you, know, you know, you could see it from the city. Uh, it was all lit up at night and everything. Now, uh, the key figure that we talked about earlier, Kukler, and he would eventually pass away in the early 1900s. What happened to his, uh, what happened to his wine house? Yeah, so, um, well, it's interesting because to, to, to go back just a little bit, um, when, the, uh, when the railroad opened in 1890, um, one of the laments in the newspapers, everyone talked, you know, the people who wrote about it said it was amazing. It was this great thing that everyone needed to go see. But one of the actual laments was that it was going to kind of take away from the sort of wild rustic nature of, of Kukler's original place. And he did embrace, um, again, even though we call him the hermit, he did embrace the, um, the traffic from the railroad. He got a liquor license and he sold food and wine. Um, but, but, you know, I think his place still remained very, um, you know, centric to his friends and that sort of thing. So yeah, he died in uh, the early 1900s. Um, I forget what the exact date is, 1903-1904. And, you know, after a short period, uh, his place was taken over by another guy named Carl Scheich. Uh, it's a really tough one to say. I hope I said it right. I met his um, great-great-granddaughter, I think, at an event, and she told me I was saying it wrong. So I think I pronounced it right this time, Scheich. Um, but he and his wife took over uh, Kukler's Roost. And despite... Jacob Kukler's plans to sort of continue to expand. The place he was living was was pretty much a, a very rustic, just little shack. You know, it had walls and a roof, but it it, it didn't have much. 
And so Shaikh and his wife really figured that they needed to make something better. And so they built this, this sort of Swiss style in uh, and really made up the place nice. And it became even more popular and, and really the iconic uh, resort of the mountain. Uh, again, continuing the name Kukler's Roost, but uh, obviously under a new guise. Now, as, uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, you know, a lot of this history has been forgotten, it's been lost. So eventually there was a decline and uh, the wine house culture and the growing of wine and that, or the growing of uh, grapes in that area de declined. What happened? Yeah, I mean, it's the easiest way to say it is that prohibition happened. Um, but I think it, 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 it is a little more complicated than that. But from a prohibition standpoint, the, the big thing with that is, is obviously that you can no longer sell grapes. There is some evidence that some of these mountain houses may have remained open, you know, subversively uh, under, during prohibition. Certainly in Reading proper, there were many, many bars that remained open during prohibition, but it, it made it so that growing grapes to make money as a way of sustenance to support your family was really no longer a viable thing to do during prohibition. So the grapes, I'm sure people still grew some grapes for their own personal use, but essentially they were ripped out, excuse me, for other crops and things of that nature. Um, and then when prohibition was repealed, uh, Pennsylvania made it incredibly difficult for, um, for wineries to exist. So the, the PLCB, Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board, was uh, created just after Prohibition, really with the explicit desire to make it as hard as possible for people to, to get alcohol. And we joke about the PLCB today and, and how, you know, this sort of public ownership of our, our liquor stores is, is somewhat strange, but uh, at least today, you know, they, they sort of have, have embraced customer service and things like that. Whereas back then it was really, you, you essentially couldn't have a winery uh, until, until the 1960s when something called the, Liter the um, Limited Winery Act was passed and that really allowed um, wineries to, to reopen. So prohibition was probably the biggest thing. I think the other thing that's, that's really important to think about is, is just that the car kind of took over for the train. And so um, there was, there wasn't as much interest in, in sort of the, the pleasure railroad. Um, certainly Reading was a, was a city that was built on the train, uh, you know, being really the center of everything. Ironically, the, the, the guy, uh, who, who figured out how to get cars to go up hills, tested it, tested his cars on Mount Penn. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I think that that was, that was a, a key factor as well on sort of the economy of Reading in general. And then, um, you know, this, this area sort of going away. So are there any examples of this late 19th century wine surviving? You know, wine is famous for people saving bottles and cellars. Did yeah. anybody save any? Um, not that I've seen. I've seen a couple photos of, of bottles, um, but I, not that I'm aware of. I can't imagine, you know, if, if you got a, there might be some Bordeaux wines that you could get that are 100 years old that, that might be okay to, to drink. It might be interesting to try. I can't imagine that anything they made back then would, would be all that good to try now. It's unfortunate because it would be really interesting to better understand what it tasted like. 
Um, but even, you know, even if it was 120 years old, that might not give you that much, uh, that much insight into it anyway, because it would have changed so much by then and probably vinegar. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Mike Medeo. He is the author of the book, Lost Mount Penn. And uh, Mike, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.